Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast, a show about people, product, and crypto. Today, I am thrilled to have with me John Werthen, one of the co-founders of Artera. Artera is a digital collectibles platform that I define as core infrastructure that leverage the near technology stack to enable anyone to issue NFTs for the users. Specifically, Artera goes after the gaming and esports world. This was a fascinating conversation where we covered a lot of ground. Just for a bit of context, this was recorded a couple of weeks ago, so before the Luna and UST debacle. However, I think that you'll find that some of the topics are quite on point. We talk about the evolving role of NFTs and how they can be seen as tools to be leveraged by existing players. We talk about the role that Artera is playing as a bridge between Web 2.0 and Web 3.0, some very interesting frameworks that John and his team utilize when it comes to mass adoption, and we even go into some of the challenges that they faced when raising money from investors once they told them they were building on the near ecosystem. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, Hello. friend. Welcome back. How are you? I am excellent. How are you, sir? Mate, I am so excited to have you back on. If I recall correctly, we met a long time ago, I think like an intro call to Silicon Capman. Yeah. When you pitched me your idea, I think it was very early stage. So I was yep. pretty excited to see it come to live. But I guess that for people listening, why don't you give us a two-sentence introduction to Artera? Yeah, absolutely. So Artera Labs is building Web3 fan engagement software for esports orgs and gaming content creators. So really hyper-focused on that gaming space, just not in gaming assets. One of the reasons why I'm really excited that you guys are doing such good work is I feel like you're working in like stealth or one of the things that I really like about Artera, if I had to rephrase, is you guys are really focused on like a mission or a vision. And I feel like you can articulate really clearly what your market segment is, like who you're going for, where the value comes from. And I guess not all crypto projects, I guess like crypto projects could say the same. One of the first things that I noticed from your website is that you guys deliberately use, what does it say? Digital collectible platform. Yeah. And it doesn't really mention NFTs anywhere it's deliberate what's the reasoning behind it yeah absolutely it's definitely deliberate and it's not to hide who we are or how we build it's just that we don't want to be necessarily associated with what the common conception of nfts is right now quite frankly especially for our space and the reason why we did really what we did was before we started building, we probably spent the first six months just interviewing people in the space, whether that be esports orgs from very small to really large, and same thing with content creators, and most importantly, listening to the fans. And to be honest, the, the sentiment around the NFT world is was just not great, and it still isn't great. So we definitely decided to stay away from calling things NFTs. Yeah, I recall very clearly. I had the joy and the pleasure of visiting your office. I can actually recognize the background. I'm visiting your yeah. office um, in Miami a few weeks ago. And I remember how we started talking you know, very casually, drinking some delicious cold brew on tap. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a shout out to WeWork. Mm. And when you guys asked me about NFTs, my mind immediately raced to the, I guess, like 
common conception of NFTs, monkey JPEGs, copy pays, a lot of shield and pump and dump. And my skeptical, I'm definitely a skeptical, but I think I was very harsh in my assessment. And I remember seeing your face and your business partner's face. And then I had to clarify, like, wait, not all NFTs are equal. Just because you've got an assessment of these profile picture world doesn't mean that all the businesses building on the NFT space have the same fate. So mm -hmm. I like it because it starts to introduce a framework of NFT as a tool or mm -hmm. a technology that you can use many use cases. And in some ways, I do think that we have to be grateful to the NFT communities and the PFP players that they've built momentum yeah, no and doubt. own attention. And now you guys are taking the lead at that next stage of growth and development and giving it some real world use cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. So the, the PFP space, it, it definitely has, it has its place. And I think it's important. Some of them I think are really cool because they're going beyond just the PFP side and trying not to just do the copy and paste of what other people have done. But there's definitely a place for that. And there's definitely a place for people who are fractionalizing things. And there's definitely a place for NFT art and for music, I think is a really exciting space. But the key that I'm trying to say is, is it needs to verticalize. There can only be so many open seas that are for everybody. And open sea is great too and has its place clearly. But there are other people that are very large that are coming out and doing an overgeneralized market and they have a very large name and the reception hasn't been great and the use case or the amount of usage is very low. So we really wanted to focus in on verticalizing. And that's what I think we've done a really good job of. And I think you're going to see a lot of that this year is people finding their niche, not trying to serve a bunch of different markets, even with PFPs and really going and tackling that sector. I think it's, it's an interesting clash of many different communities. So if you think of digital creatives, they may not be traditional product or business people. So they may be missing some of those frameworks. To me, the PFP market has always been very simple. It's all yeah. Ethereum money, having fun. Yeah, totally. Throwing money back and forth, building okay. stronger communities so that you could connect with people online. There is nothing wrong with that market, but there's two key things that you have to understand if you want to participate. The first one is it has a limited size. <laughs> yeah. And the second one is it is saturated. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you start looking at the outside world, people consciously or consciously understand that. So if you're looking at a traditional gaming community, then maybe we're not part of that community. Like, why are you trying to jam those, could be trends, could be patterns, could be culture into us. And some things may just not translate, especially if one community comes in almost like superior or like the new thing. Yeah. So I think that it's really interesting that once again, like from your website, you guys are basically core infrastructure. So you're enabling people that do have their own existing communities to bring in the technology and use it to suit their needs. Would that be an accurate description? Yeah, totally. And I think to we need to take a step back too, because what you were saying is right about your points you're making about the space. Like, yeah, of course it is saturated and everything and people are gonna have to start to learn how to diversify and everything. But I think there's a weird juxtaposition in this space because on one hand in the blockchain world, we talk about decentralization allows financial freedom, right? to talk about DeFi applications and it's banking the unbanked. It's making people feel like one Bitcoin in, you know, I don't know, Southeast Asia is the same value as one Bitcoin in the US and or Venezuela or something like that, where you're fighting inflation and things. And that's important. And I think that's the freedom aspect is something people can latch behind. And 
But then again, with the NFTs, we immediately did the exact opposite. We've priced everybody out. And when you price everybody out, it automatically puts a bad taste in people's mouth because you hit the hammer right on top of the nail. It is old Ethereum money that they've made in various different things and throwing it around and seeing what happens. But the problem is the majority of the world doesn't have old Ethereum money. And if you don't have that, you're immediately priced out. And even with the mints, if it's 0.1 ETH to mint or 0.05 ETH to mint or 0.08, it doesn't matter. That's still a ton of, and then having to worry about gas fees and making sure the transaction goes through and stuff like that. So majority of the world's priced out. So they're going to be already having a slanted viewpoint of what's possible. And that's just kind of something that a narrative that we have to fight through really hard. And, you know, it's, that's just kind of part of it. It's a very interesting debate because depending on which circles you hang out, it's very well defined, but I've actually seen the exact same argument in opposite directions. Some yeah. people say that gas, high gas fees are a feature, not a bug, yeah. network secure, maybe proves that there's demand. But I can definitely see that it is so expensive that it just locks out most people and most use cases. And a framework that I always keep coming back to is what is the purpose or the reason behind it, buying the NFT? Because when the purpose or the reason becomes flipping it and it's purely yeah. financial, that's yeah. the definition of a bubble. That's what happened with the ICO boom in 2017, yep. 2018, and it ended horrifically, <laughs> including prosecutions and, and fines and whatnot. So I think that I really like the notion of bringing down the price point to the point where the NFT is just one extra component of an experience. And you can engage in the NFTs. It could be a game. It could be, you know, memorabilia. It could be a range of things that when you pay, you can pay a very small amount or, you know, whatever. Price, right. flexible, inclusive, but also you can have it for fun or you can have it for reasons other than the expectation of flipping it. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you because I see on the website that there is no transaction costs at all on your platform. Right. So I'd be really interested to hear your perceptions on both the cost of using Near and the flexibility of the tech stack that enables you to remove even the very, very low cost of using Near, just removing it altogether. Yeah, absolutely. So on the website too, in, in the next couple of weeks, we have a, a much more full website coming out with a lot more information and things that we're actually doing because the landing page that we have was, was really sparse with information. And we did that quite frankly on purpose because in this industry, you can get front run pretty quick. And sometimes it's better to show than try and talk about it before you do something. So that's, that you can expect in a couple of weeks. But to talk about the gas fees and transactions and really how we're built we have to take the standpoint and we get a lot of hate from this on people that are really like, let's decentralize everything. And I agree, that's where we, we need to be. But right now you gotta get everybody there with you. And if we threw the kitchen sink at our users who are not familiar with this space, we put ourselves and we put our users in a disadvantaged position. Because if something were to go wrong, if a transaction weren't to go through or they didn't know how to create, you know, or hold on to the seed phrase or things like this, it doesn't fall back on us. And it actually falls back on the esports organization or the content creator that actually created the stuff. So basically what you're doing is, is you're setting up these orgs and you're setting up these content creators to answer a lot of questions that they may not be prepared to answer in a very cohesive way. And the second they stumble or the second that they don't answer a question, that's when it becomes not as transparent for the fan. And then it becomes, oh, 
they don't even know they don't even know how to answer this i'm out so the we took the standpoint of utilizing progressive decentralization we're built completely on near but we are when you create an account on our platform we're actually creating that near account for you that near wallet for you and subsidizing that cost and then we're holding on to the keys and doing a bunch of encryption stuff to keep it safe. The reason for that is, is that a majority of the users haven't ever created a blockchain wallet yet, but they want to see what it's about. But remember, this group's still skeptical about what NFTs can do for them. So they're, it's a balancing act. Like, okay, there's a lot of teaching to be done. So right now we're a custodial service, but then we're going to be opening it up to where if the user wants to, Big emphasis on if, because there's a lot of people right now that still don't want to, even if it's available, you'll be able to go and take custody of your own keys and then do your own stuff. And at that point, you'd be paying the very minimal gas fees on the platform with Near. But right now, we are subsidizing all that. So the gas fees for sending and receiving things, so it's normal for people. It feels like um, you're just, uh, you can type in your buddy's username and then send them over a collectible and then it's over in a, in a split second. And it makes it something that they're they can get used to. And then when they get familiar with this and the terminology and how things work, then we can slowly begin to add on. But if the, the foundation isn't strong and it's a foundation that people don't understand, it's um, a lot harder to retain users. And the last thing I want to add on this is that at one point until we just did this complexity drop and I, I, I need to go and review the data, but 90% of the users in the first drops that we did created their first blockchain wallet with us and interacted with NFTs for the first time. And we've, you know, launched with one really large creator and it was a great and some smaller ones and that's really great too. But 90% and in my opinion, if we were to throw, okay, you got to go create this wallet first, then you can connect into our user, then you can go claim and then you got to sign this transaction. There's too many steps. So we just had to take that out for us, for them. So just to clarify, the users have all their own wallets, so the assets are segregated. The yes. wallets are technically custodian because Artera has the keys to them. Yep. At any one time in the future, if the user chooses to, they can take the assets out. Yep. And the I'm guessing the smart contract that uh, runs behind the platform is set up in a way that the creator of the contract, or in this case, Artera, covers yep. the gas fees for the user. Is that correct? Correct. See, I love it because it's a really clear, simple use case that highlights a lot of the technical uh, features about Nier that we've been talking about for a long time. I've been really mm -hmm. bullish on them. And that's why I got into Nier in January 2020, uh, sorry, March 2020. And it's really amazing to see projects coming forward with them now. And I think that maybe it would have been a controversial proposition back in the day because we were trying to convert people from other blockchains that may be more right. maxi on the decentralization front. Yeah. They're fighting governments and central banks. Oh, yeah. But I think that in the last couple of weeks, there has been Sweatcoin. They came out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. They have a very similar approach. They've got a very well-defined product. It's around getting people walking and getting people earning crypto and then they could spend crypto. All these users on a beautifully designed app have their wallet. I think at some point they'll be able to switch the coin. But the yep. key thing here is it is enabling mass adoption by bringing the barrier of access so low and getting yep. people immersed. Mm -hmm. As the previous guest said, first you show people value 
yep. and you get them using and having fun. The crypto is an important feature, but it's it, it shouldn't be a complication or, or a negative task to do. And what's interesting is that when you look at the, the crypto or the decentralized element, a lot of people, I think they over-index, they're holding it privately and having total control. When in reality, a lot of it can actually be around, uh, I don't want to say tokenomics because I know that in your context, it's slightly different, Yeah. but it's just a perception. You, know, you have a unique item or it, it's more like a physical element scarcity wise and making it special embedding special meaning into it in a way that was previously hard in the digital world and i think that can very easily be done and the user can perceive that value without having to force them to have yeah, totally one thing here that i really like is that if 90 percent of the users their first wallet is with near we're actually going to have a radically different as an opposite experience because once they use near, when they try to use any other blockchain, there is absolutely no way they're even going to consider it an alternative. So I yep. think that kudos to you on the team. I think, and I may be guilty of this, that we've been spending way too much time fighting on Twitter with people from other blockchains. Yeah. And I do have a theory, which has proven to be correct in some cases, that when they experience near, they see the benefits and they become at least open to a multi-chain world and they see the value. Yeah. That is such a small portion of the world that if we actually focus on like real world products and going and getting your users mm -hmm. and just leveraging the near stack, I honestly think Artera and Sweatcoin, and there's a few other projects with a similar uh, setup and, and characteristics, you guys are going to be the ones reaping most of the growth because <laughs> yeah. you have real value, which is blockchain agnostic and users are just able to benefit from a really good user experience. Yeah, and I think that's a good point and not necessarily that we're going to have the most users, but I think people talk a lot about bridges, like the Rainbow Bridge is amazing and we've got Wormhole, you've got all these things and, and they're great and they, they definitely have their place too. But I think there's other bridges and I, I think Artera is a bridge, quite frankly. And like you were saying, like we're a bridge for Web 2 to Web 3. We are easy mode, right? We're training wheels. And not to say that we're elementary level of what our product is and that our product isn't important, but that's what we want to be. And it's not really necessarily sexy to be that because it's we can't jump on the hype train of, oh, wow, we're doing this. Look, we're in this niche. Like All the decentralized guys are big fans of us. We'll get there, but we're taking a little bit of a dirtier approach and we're in the mud a little bit more than others. And and I think that's, it's good for everybody. It's good for the ecosystem. And then once we, you know, give the option to take custody of your own wallet and, and control that, then those new users can go and see what else is happening on near and it benefits the entire ecosystem because that's what this is about. It's you have to reach the people that aren't there yet. And the gaming community is such a great audience because the demographic is so right, but they also just inherently understand digital items and digital assets so well. And I think even beyond that, they understand game economies so well. And our world is a game economy and to treat it differently, I think is foolish. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting, an interesting thing that people need to remember. We seem to be in sync. Even though 
we are miles apart. <laughs> I'm actually technically still very close in Mexico City, but I'm going yeah. to Australia over the weekend and it, my mind has started drifting away slowly. I was actually about to ask you about the demographics. So I'm actually not personally familiar with esports or gaming. I'm more like geeks and books. But for people listening, um, assuming they don't have much background, would you be able to give us some overview of the size of the market, esports growth in recent times, esports and gaming? And I guess, what are they using now? And you yeah. already hinted at it. Why are they so primed for the Tech 3 stack? And I think we've yeah. been overshadowing very strongly the barriers for unleashing that power in Web3 and how Artera is, is tackling that. Yeah, absolutely. So the size of the market in the esports space is it's interesting. You take a holistic like revenue model and everything, and that's just over we're over the billion dollar territory now, which is good. But I read a really fascinating article that the way that they do the data and show the data on the revenue of the esports market is not right. And this university article was arguing that the revenue of esports in general is fifteen billion dollars worldwide which is if you accumulate everything, which is a really fascinating uh, topic. And the reason for that is there's... I was going to ask uh, the reason, what makes it 40 billion? Is it like merch, ad, ad, revenue advertising? What's the... Yeah. yeah, so it accounts for all the publishers, like the, the revenues that they're making off of everything too, and also the content creators. I'll send it to you after this. It's really fascinating. We're actually putting together a, uh, a blog and that breaking it down and why how our Terra fits in this and how we can help with those monetization methods. But yeah, it's really fascinating. But what's cool about this space is that you have in-person events that are getting really strong. Like right before COVID happened, I went with my wife to in Dallas to a home Overwatch home, like they're called the Homestead events and to watch the Dallas Fuel play. It was pretty, it was electric. And it's really cool because, you know, you, the Overwatch fans love cosplay. So all things Blizzard, there's going to be cosplay involved and everything. So that's pretty cool. So there's really strong IRL events and then you've got like TwitchCon and things like BlizzCon. There's just great events all around and there's becoming more and more, but it's also really dominant online. And so these are all in real life events of esports competitions. Yep. So people gather together to watch people compete. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this must be what my mate in Australia, he yeah, he went, it was like three AM in the morning, crazy time. And it was like a stadium. Yeah. And all these screens. I, I couldn't believe yeah. we were they, out for beers and like at 1 a.m. He's like, I got to go. And I was like, yeah, let's go. Where are we going? And he's, I don't know if you want to join. And he explained to me what he was. And I was like, did you take some drugs and you didn't tell me? <laughs> <laughs> it was a completely new notion for me, but it makes sense because you're adding, I guess we've always done it. You may watch a baseball on the TV or a football game on the TV. It really makes no difference that the game is online, it still drives the same emotions you've got, especially the community element, getting together with people. It's, yeah, I guess the potential, even though it's not my world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the key, it's potential. And then w the best thing, and I this is going to come across and sound horrific, but the best thing for esports and gaming was the pandemic. And it was a, obviously a, a terrible thing for the world but for this industry it was interesting because you learned and esports found out what it is and we learned that esports is not gaming esports is culture where cult where culture goes gaming follows and what i mean by that is the convergence of traditional sports and and esports 
So what happened when nobody could play sports and you couldn't connect with your fans? Well, we got fat and depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so true. So true. That too. But like the people like Devin Booker, Gordon Hayward and guys like that were immediately jumping to Twitch to start gaming. And why did they do that? Because it is an unbelievable method to connect with your fan base on a more personal level. You can't connect when you're on a court, even if you're one of the best ever, it's still hard to connect with your fans. They have to watch you, but you're not connecting back. So we learned that esports is really important to be that connection piece at a different level for these athletes, for these celebrities. And then to take it to a step further, we learned who, who is an esports fan. And we learned that it's not just one person. Overwatch people love cosplay, but you would never go to a Call of Duty event and see it. You would never see cosplay at a Call of Duty event. Why? Because Call of Duty people love streetwear. They are huge into fashion. So you've got, it brought in the 100 Thieves of the World who have a, like literally a fashion arm now. They'll, they'll do a drop, in-person drop at their facility in California, and there's a mile and a half long line to get it, go and get it. But they're also a competitive, they have competitive esports in there. And then they also have content creators. And then they're also bringing non-endemic brands like Chipotle in on a massive scale. So esports, and the reason why I believe the revenue pro- like projection of this article that I was reading is because it's not just the gaming anymore. And we're not accounting for all the other things and the ripple effects of what gaming does. And that's why it's such an exciting market for us. That we're still looking for the glue, right? The glue right now is you can go to Twitch or go to YouTube gaming and watch VOD, like video on demand, like videos, or watch the streamers uh, like Tim the Tabman and stuff. But what we're missing is how do we make that fandom travel across Twitch, travel across YouTube? Because I'm a fan of Tim the Tabman, even if I'm not watching YouTube gaming, or I really like Nick Merckx, even if I'm not on Twitch. But I have no way to show my fandom to the world unless I'm in there and I have a badge by my name because I've been a subscriber for 24 months or something like that. So there's levels to this, and we have to show a way to level it. And the and digital collectibles are, are what's going to provide an unbelievable glue for this because it can be the badging system to show who you are. You're the super fan. It could be the access key to get into an exclusive stream, or it could be the access key to go to the IRL events. So you can be a fan across the entire spectrum in a safe and secure way now like you never could before. And that's the tooling that we're able to provide this industry. That is amazing. Your depth of knowledge and the passion that comes through as you explain it fills me with joy and hope (laughs) because it's a world that I know nothing about, but it evokes so many things. The first one is you don't need to ask for permission to innovate. You know, if you yeah. are an expert in your industry or you're really passionate about something, there is a tech stack there that is available to you and you could just go and build, even if yeah. no one else understands or knows. I guess from people looking from the outside, such as me, the thing that I'd say is you don't need to be the user of the product or you don't need to totally. understand it for it to be an industry with massive potentials. And I can see it here, even like demographically, like this would be very heavily skewed towards young people or it is growing in ways that it is going to be invisible for people for a long time. And when it's a $50 billion industry, people will be scratching their heads and wondering how it happened. The third one, and perhaps the most interesting one to me is 
the disintermediation process. So I think that before we have the TV and the teams, and then yeah. we have social media so we can connect directly with people, but it's, it was still one directional. You follow them and they can talk to you directly. I love that now we're able to show that fandom or we can start to play with that relationship in very different ways. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that if I put my visionary hat on, and I've been told many times, especially over the last two weeks, that I'm a glass half full guy. Yeah. I think that this is the first step in that direction. Yeah. But yeah. you start to establish that fandom. And over time, you may actually just take out YouTube altogether. And you have a full stack and ecosystem that is completely optimized for direct communication between fans, teams, players, all the stakeholders. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. But and it'll be interesting to see how the supply and demand, if the demand's there, maybe we, we become more than that. Who knows? And we were leaving it open. I like to say that we're like a supermarket and at a supermarket, there's a lot of different, you go to a supermarket for different things. You don't go just for like produce or anything like that. You can also go to a, and buy a TV there. We want to be a company that's multifaceted because we want to be where the people are. And I think building with that in mind and why we were so focused on building out a strong API that people could plug into their already existing infrastructure, like their own websites and stuff like that is because I think you're going upstream in a really heavy, uh, the, the stream is very strong. If you try and bring everybody to one central place all the time, like we have our central hub at app.artera.co where everything's going to be. You can watch Twitch streams, your YouTube streams. You can watch, you can enter into tournaments with collectibles. We're going to be introducing that and stuff as well. But our technology has to live. Like for complexity gaming, we should have our API be able to plug into their website because you don't want to lose people in translation. So we want what complexity gaming puts on their website to just be complexity gaming stuff and their content creators, but it also display on our website. So these are the things that we're working really hard on um, and you just have, you have to do. I think it's part of the consistency of great. And here it gives you a tech stack that enables you to create great user experiences for the user. Yeah. But you have to double click on who the user is. Cause I actually made the note here before you actually have like multiple stakeholders and you have to yeah. manage all of them. You've got very large esports companies or gaming companies. They have an existing audience, an existing product, an existing revenue model, and the most importantly, free conceived notions of whatever the future may be or, right. or different, yeah, different pressure to increase revenue or expand some and more than others. Then you've got the fans or the users saying they can come in many shapes or forms and they've got a set of needs. It's yeah. easy for us to try to standardize as far as the digital user experience goes, because we just assume, look, people are used to using products that all have the same pattern. You don't totally. want to click 15 times. You don't want to be downloading extra stuff, but there's a lot there to take into account. And I think that being mindful and not being greedy or egocentric and expecting everyone to come to your platform as it becomes that core infrastructure that could power an entire industry is massive. Yeah, totally. That having that SDK or that APY is going to be a game changer. And just to see if I get it right, let's have a hypothetical. Say right. I own, I don't know, the Snappy Kangaroos team in Australia. Yeah. It could be a real world team playing sports or it could be an esports team. Would the SDK APY from Arterra enable me to basically 
plug and play and start creating assets for my users? And what kind of range of offerings could I start offering my existing audience? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that you see on app.artero.co, which is it's quite basic right now, quite frankly, but and it's, it's going to be able to be offered from their website immediately and completely branded however they want to tie our endpoints to their website. We've got a company doing that right now. I'm really excited to see how that works out. But everything, we just wanted everybody, because early on we thought about this, it was funny, it's like a Christmas tree. And I know it sounds really silly, but Christmas trees have a lot of ornaments and a lot of lights. And we want to be able to offer a lot of different features, a lot of different things. And that's the key because that's our job. It's just to build the infrastructure and then let other people go and make whatever they want to make out of it. These orgs and creators and leagues and everything. But not every team is going to want the same thing as, so a really large organization is probably going to want a lot of it, but they may not want a lot of it at the beginning and that's totally fine. So they can turn on different things that they want to utilize. If they just want to start creating collectibles and they just want to be able to put them for sale, you can do that and not have to pull everything else. And then as you get more comfortable and as your fans get more comfortable, then you can slowly start to add on. And that's what it's about. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, I'm just really curious. How does the team look like at the moment? Are, are you onboarding like a sales rep that can handhold yeah. these companies and like basically show them what is possible? I see it almost like, like a quasi consulting arm to do that first like a sales cycle, but maybe the yeah. implementation cycle as well. Would you even be offering like actual technical services to implement whatever they want? How are you tackling that challenge of, okay, once first we have to deal with the perception and once they buy in the implementation would be an extra layer of challenge or, or does ASDK solve this? Yeah, so good questions. A little bit to unpack there. So first for the team makeup right now, we for how, how we reach out. So Corey Hollingsworth is our head of partnerships and his background is really interesting. And why we're really excited to be able to bring him on board is that he was with Panini America for a really long time, which is one of the biggest trading card companies in the world. And they are the kings of sports trading cards. I remember when I was a kid, every World Cup, they'd be the Panini albums. Yeah. And yeah, it was massive. I, I guess that's stating me. Uh, yeah. I look younger than I am, but it was amazing. That's why I get NFTs and I especially get the projects that are trying to emulate that experience. It is literally a feeling that you get of collecting someone, of understanding the meaning of what you're collecting, of connecting with others that have the same drive and vision. Like we literally drive across the city to different like kiosks that yep. became like hotspots for people to like trade cards. Mm -hmm. And you'd go to school and you open the packets and you feel all the album with the different cards with the players. Like it was amazing. So kudos to, for, I guess, like stealing that talent from Panini. <laughs> Sorry, Panini. Yeah. Make way for the digital era. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So yeah, that's really how we got him is that he wanted to go into this next stage of digital collectibles. He knew that's where things were heading. And we just presented a pretty good opportunity and, and our ethos of how we view really the world and how people connect really seem. So it was a pretty natural fit. So what he does is he works hand in hand with these orgs and creators and helps them strategize and talk about what's possible. And then what we're doing now is onboarding content creator, like onboarding team, but who they are, are gamers and they're esports people. And two of them were really skeptical, actually, of the whole digital collectible space. 
like really skeptical. And that is quite frankly, that was like, yes, I was really pumped about it. I said, all I ask for is a meeting. And I just let us talk about why we exist and let us be honest with you. And the first thing we say to them is NFTs as they are, will not work for this industry. It's just not going to work. It's not going to resonate globally. It's not going to pick up. We can't do PFPs for this industry. It's just not going to work. And they were like, thank you. And then they're like, what about the environment? You're killing the environment. I said, actually, this is why we're built on near protocol. And then we showed them everything that that near has to offer on that side of uh, on the environmental concerns. And they're like, oh, wait, really? And then we brought them to the platform. I said, go claim this collectible in our staging environment for testing. Just see how easy it is and, and go create an account. And they're like, wait, okay, this actually make this this could actually work. And I said, okay, look at what's happening at Twitch right now and all the pushback that the streamers are doing. And then now they work they work with us and they're awesome and they're really great and they're really good at communicating with creators and, and they're they're great. And we're gonna be hiring on quite a lot more now that we got a, we we're closing a round out and we're really excited about who just came in the round, which I think we're gonna be announcing next week, which I think the near community should be pretty excited about. I thought you were going to give me some alpha. I thought I thought that the complexity partnership was going to be our alpha because you did tell me on Twitter a few days before it dropped. Yeah. And I saw the tweet yesterday and we're recording today. So I was like, damn it, I hope he has something special to share with the audience. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, we've got a lot going on. And yeah, the, yeah. the drop happened yesterday. Part one did, yeah. I'll tell you what, if you want to share the investor, we can make sure that the episode airs after you've made the official announcement. And that way it can just be like a different distribution channel so that people can find out as they listen to the episode. But because I was aiming to publish this on Sunday, but I can push it back. It doesn't, it's not a problem. Yeah, let's hold off on that because I'll see how how that goes. But yeah, it's a good one. So anyway. I was so close. I could feel it. I, I almost got it out. Anyway. You, you almost got it out of me. But yes, yeah, no. so that's what our sales cycle's at right now. And it's not a traditional one. It's really conversation-based. And it, it has to be that way. Otherwise, we're you have to teach before someone would be tempted to come on. And so that's where we're at. I liked very much the analogy of being a bridge between Web 2 and Web 3. And obviously, a lot of that is not the actual technology. A lot of that it's actually ideologically, culturally onboarding, really. So I think I can see why you got this big name investor that shall remain unknown for now, because a pitfall that a lot of companies do is most companies recruiting is very hard yep. and recruiting in crypto is especially hard because usually people tend to lack the crypto knowledge. They just don't understand what the product is that they're offering. But in your case, you actually have two challenges. You need somebody who understands the product that you're offering. And I guess yep. in some ways, because you've made the product so easy to use in a web two way that makes it easier. But the other problem is you almost need like a translator. And I recall when I was reading about translating languages, it was this Portuguese translator. No, no, it was a Portuguese author complaining that the English translator was taking 50% of the royalties for the English sales. And somebody explained to them, like, look, there is a reason why you get a translator and you don't use Google Translate because a good translator is unique. You're not translating for language. You're translating for the culture. You're translating for the meaning. What is it that you're trying to convey? So I think that in your sense, going the extra mile and finding people that understand deeply the world that you're trying to go into, and I guess converting them first yeah. makes for a really unique and strong sales team 
And yeah, they would probably be in a really good position to identify who would be good candidates, what would be the hesitations, what could be offered to them to onboard them. So that makes me very bullish. Yeah. Not financial I, advice. I don't even know if you guys have any tokens or if you're raising I, money. Not, not now. Not now. We, d we didn't want to take that approach first. We wanted to build a community first. Quite frankly, building community is not always through collectibles. We're going to be doing some stuff by just putting tournaments on and getting a bunch of gamers together and us just running the prize pools of it. And it's going to be casual. There's going to be casual tournaments with casual gamers. Like, for example, there's one with a, a, a Discord community called the Small Creators Community. They are ran out of the, the UK and other parts of Europe. But they have 21,500 people in their Discord chat. And it's just gamers who love video games. And some of them do content creation on their own. Um, and they're very active. So we got with them. We brought their whole team together and they gave us a platform to talk about what we're doing and why it matters. And it went really well. And there are people who are not ready to get on and get involved and that's fine. But we are working with them. We're going to be doing some tournaments with their community to get them into the ecosystem so they can at least be around it. And when symbiosis happens, it's always a good thing because it sparks curiosity. So that's an important factor too. Not it, it, As long as they're in the ecosystem, as long as they're, they're seeing what's going on, eventually they will warm up to the idea. And if they don't, and that's okay too, but you build for everybody. And we built our platform for people that we knew would never want to work for us. And we knew that the people that liked crypto stuff would always try it, but we knew that was the small minority. So you build with people who wouldn't want to try it. And if you build well for them, you'll bring in the masses. And that's what we wanted to do. And it's a weird approach, but that's just what we wanted to do. It is a weird approach for people that have been too far for, for too long in crypto and that have never actually considered how to grow a real business. I think it's a common approach, or at least most certainly the correct approach on the real world. Like when you look at the adoption cycle, if you've got the builders, the early adopters, early majority, late majority, somewhere in the middle, it's what they call the chasm or like the valley yeah. of death. Yeah. And that is trying to cross from the builders and early adopters who are happy and eager to try your product, even just yep. to support you. They're happy to deal with the friction. They're happy to pay more. Migrating, or I guess going from that group to people that don't give a single fuck about you and will drop your product in a second if it doesn't work properly. That's the value of death. Yep. If you're not stressing yourself and building for the people, like the tough crowd, yep. you could be deluding yourself, especially with growth metrics. Everything yeah, grows in the early days. Of course. The question is who's going to grow past a certain point. Yeah, that's true. So kudos. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I think real quick on the growth point, I think it's easy to get parabolic growth early with it, it, anytime you pay money. And we haven't done that um, yet at all. We've actually got a pretty natural growth uh, trend that we're following that we're really quite pleased with. Because it's people we know that are going to continuously use the platform and provide feedback. And that's what we want in this stage. And, and that's with that in mind, that's why we partnered with Complexity. And that's why we've, we did the drop with Complexity like we did because of the natural aspect of our relationship and how they wanted to promote it. So I think with what we do with Complexity, I hope changes the landscape of how people will approach this space because we are 
I, and I think I've already mentioned this, but I told the complexity team and everybody's aligned. Like we are not going to build on sand where anytime we build a foundation, no matter if it's a really small creator organization, we're going to start off on rock. And the reason for that is, and how you find that and how you build on a rock is you build with a smaller amount of people in mind who will become your evangelists. And what that meant for complexity is instead of doing an unlimited amount of collectibles, they're doing 2003 to commemorate their founding year. And they've been around for a long time. And in that span of 19 years that they've been around, the one thing that they have always been consistent with and always been known for, always been known for is character. So when they do something, they don't do something fast. They do something with intention. And how we took this partnership was to build with intention, to partner with intention. And Jason Lake is the CEO and, co and, and founder of Complexity Gaming. And he's also, luckily, he's on our, our board of directors as well. He's been instrumental in helping us with how we frame things and how we approach things. But even with their messaging yesterday, it's they just dropped 250 out of the 2003 yesterday, and it went really well. And we made sure that it got in their actual fans hands instead of all crypto people which is not a bad thing but all crypto people coming in and swooping up so now those 250 people are going to be rewarded immediately by them with something really cool with discounts on their store which they've got some really cool stuff now and then they're going to immediately be able to be rewarded by us because we're giving away free brand new complexity jerseys with their near usernames on the back of them so that's and then once that word gets out, then we're going to release the next batch and say, okay, this isn't just a digital collectible. This is a movement for fans. The fans are going to have something to say in this. See, that's value. I am skeptical of, there's a few things there, but we'll, we're skeptical of NFTs, obviously, in the old world, that they are obsessed with fighting utility. I think those NFTs, quite honestly, are securities. I think it isn't realistic to maintain a team at working forever for free, giving people yep. that bought a JPEG money into perpetuity. Yep. But receiving a jersey that has been customized to you and you know that you're part of a group of only 250, that is amazing. Like I would mm -hmm. wear that jersey with pride and it's just something special. There is a context and there is legacy. And I know that we should have probably mentioned this like at the beginning of the episode, but complexity... <laughs> If people have made it this far and they still don't know, Complexity Gaming is one of the oldest esports companies uh, in North America. And yeah, you're now partners. I'm curious about that partnership. Where is the, the CEO based? They're all in Frisco, so right outside of Dallas. So they're actually the affiliate company of the Dallas Cowboys. And I would assume most people know who the Dallas Cowboys are. So their facility... If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and type in the Complexity Gaming Facility. They, one of the esports magazines just did a huge tour. It's a $25 million facility. It is the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. Bridge and I were there when we were game planning all of this stuff and how we were going to do the drop. But it's not just for show. They're actually investing in the players and the content creators and actually doing stuff to make them better and to help build them up as a brand too, which was really exciting for us. I am going to Google it and I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Is this a gaming facility as in a massive place where people go and play with all the gear or what, what are we talking about? Yeah, so in the entry part, they have a, a, a public space where you can buy merch and stuff and they host like gaming tournaments and stuff there. But that's actually where their players like train and, and that's where their off offices are. 
the training rooms there are actually ridiculous. And then to take it a next step further, their content creators and their like players on each of the, uh, the teams they have eat at the same facility for breakfast and lunch as the Dallas Cowboys. So they eat the same nutrition. And then they get to work out at Dallas Cowboys gym there. So they have mandatory training day. So they're taking care of their bodies too. And that's what it, that was what's going to seem silly, but how they take care of their people is indicative of how they take care of their fans. They would never do something that they thought was going to endanger their fans. And I think on the collectible side of this, what was really cool with what they did and what we worked on was not to throw a roadmap in people's faces. And one, one, a, a senior editor at a very large gaming magazine reached out to me and I didn't see a roadmap. It concerned me. I said, a person X, I said, this is how it's supposed to be. Roadmaps are 90% BS. It's empty promises that are never fulfilled to create fake hype in the beginning that falls off for most projects. And I'm not saying for all, there's a lot of people who follow roadmaps very well and it's very impressive. I said, this roadmap is for the fans and by the fans. These fans are immediately getting involved in saying, okay, what could be an added value of these collectibles on top of what complexity has already kind of got in mind, but what could be an added value that I'd really like from this? And then they start throwing ideas out and then those people start talking to their friends and it creates a ripple effect of genuine interest and genuine concern for the team and wanting the team to do well. And that is what I think we are doing a good job of that we haven't seen yet. And I think a testament of that is three of the largest esports organizations in the world um, yesterday reached out to us and wanted to know if they could do this, the same thing and if they could do it too. And one, they wanted to work with us. And that was a great sign for us. And we didn't do a really sexy hype marketing or anything like that. We were just us and we were just staying with our mission and we were backing really good people. And then that's what people want to see. It's not how much marketing can we push out of this. It's real action that people want to see. One of the things that I find somewhat annoying and I've been trying to insulate myself from is that these things are actually well understood and in many cases explicit. And in crypto, we've got on the one hand mercenary capital. Yep. And then on the other hand, we've got scammers and rug pullers and people who promise the world that don't deliver shit. And I keep saying people like, look, there are red flags. And in your case, I'm going to have to say there are green flags. Not needing a token because you designed your product and you know who your user is. You're selling to esports companies and they have them having their assets. You don't have to create a token and go raise millions of dollars before anything exists. I know that yep. the team has raised money privately, but once again, it shows commitment and seriousness because when you raise money privately, as opposed to with a shitty token, you're actually raising a security. You yep. do disclose intent and you're legally bound to those investors yep. to execute on what you promised it. Otherwise that's fraud. And I know that yep. fraud is a fine concept to people in crypto, yep. but it really shits me that there's people out there thinking that there's easy money to be made. And if fool gives it to them, it's fair game. And there's many people that they may be naive. They maybe should be, everyone learns after they get rock pulled once or twice, but they should be a bit more critical about 
what they're funding or supporting. And anyway, that was a bit of a rant, but I'm really excited to see that through the product offering, there are more people reaching out to you. And that is yep. the best sign of organic growth. And I'm going to link this with when I was in Miami at your office, you mentioned that there were some difficulty or some awkward conversations with some of the investors mm -hmm. when you were trying to sell them or when you told them that you were building on the near blockchain. Yeah, they were, they were I'm for sure. Really curious to know if you're able to share maybe some of their objections and obviously how it's panned out since I think that at least at a product level, you've been able to prove your point or your thesis. So yeah, if, if it's okay. Yeah, I think here I can, I think I can provide some really good insight. And I think that I'm not going to be alone in this and our team's not going to be alone in this. I think I'm sure the other NFT projects on near when they went to look to raise money, got some pushback as well. And what you were talking about before this, what annoys you actually is really hand in hand with what I'm getting ready to say with the pushback. If it's not marketed well, if it's not branded some way in a public sphere, if there's not a token associated with it or really big blue chips in the space for the NFT space, you're going to struggle with investors with some investors, but especially if you're early, like we are, quite frankly, we had pushback in the near sense because they didn't think that the near NF NFTs on near would be a thing. They told me, and some people that are really prominent in the space, and I respect a lot too, and I think they're very smart, and I don't slight them for what their opinion is. They don't think that the NFTs on near are going to work. And I was like, you know what? I respect that. That makes that makes sense. You can have that opinion because it's early because there weren't there wasn't a lot of NFT activity going on near. I said the best thing that I can do and the the thing that I can ask from you, even if you never invest in us, can you can I be allowed to send you updates on what happens? And they're like, yeah, of course, uh, no doubt. Please keep us posted. So we're going to be sending some very nice updates on, on how things are going because normal people actually aren't looking for what chain you're on. They just want to know where the UX is friendliest and where the onboarding process is easiest and where they can feel safe. And I think Near Protocol does a really good job of that. And I think everyone knows that in the beginning, Near didn't do a lot of marketing. No one knew really what was going on. And hell, it's not even on the Western exchanges yet. So it's, we're, in, we're still in like a little bit of a limbo. So how can I talk to Western investors? And then there, it's thin ice sometimes. But I do know this, one of the things that we got from a Complexity fan yesterday in their Discord, and I, I want to read this because I, it's important on why this is why near, and this is why near NFTs are going to work really well. And someone reached out to, to us and said, that was the best part. It was painless and easy. It wasn't confusing. And the user experience was thoughtful. Not to mention it didn't harm the environment didn't require you to provide banking details up front and has long-term implications beyond just art. And I don't know who it is, or I don't care what I'm building on. Yeah, Hire right. Them on the spot. <laughs> yeah, not, not many people can say that about other types of projects yet. That doesn't mean that the people won't get there. That's not the case at all. It's not my job to, to knock other people. I think other pro the protocols are doing really great things. But to... 
I think we're going to do a good job of proving that the near NFT space is viable and it's going to be very strong. And there's other people like Paras and Membase who I like a lot. I think they're doing really great stuff. And they're also really good people too, which is awesome. So I'm actually very bullish on this space because I think there's people who put their heads down and just work. And a lot of people on our side work without promoting. And they let what they've built promote itself. And it's a very uncommon thing in the industry because everyone wants to promote hype and see how big their Twitter following can get and how many people they can get in a Discord channel. We would rather go to people when we're confident with what we have. And we feel confident with what we have. And we feel very confident in where we're built. I mean, we're proud to be built where we're built because building on near for us, we were in the first OWC co or the open web cohort and everything. And we've been around for a long time. And it took us a long time to build, but hey, we finally made it. But near for us is beyond just we built on near is somewhere where you can actually feel like you're accepted. And what I mean by that is it's if a project's further along the line than you are, they're not too good for you. The Flux guys are a great example. We've been we've known Peter and Jasper for a long time and we've bounced ideas off of each other and just chatted for a long time. And finally I got to meet Jasper in person in Paris at Paris Blockchain Week at the panel we did. And get, it came up and gave me a big hug and everybody was so nice. And I've never got to meet any of them in person before. And it's just that's what you want. And that's where you want to build. And we're just we're really happy to be where we're at. I've got very fond memories of the Flux team at the Neo Lounge. And that's exactly what you say. I really liked about the, that, that Neo Lounge experience. And I met everyone. I met Ilya. I met Alex Shevenko. I met Maria. Yeah. I met everyone. No one asked their job title. No one asked their net worth. No one was there to sell anything. Yeah. It felt like a proper community. Like we were happy yeah. to be able to hang out in person after having known each other online yeah. for a long time. And overall, there was like a, a lot of energy in the room because no one was sitting comfortable with what they had or what they were. Yeah. We were all like building and connecting. And it was really an electric week. And I imagine Paris would be the same. And I've got massive FOMO now. But going back to what you were saying, there is this popular conception, mostly amongst entrepreneurs, that they're mm -hmm. contrarians. And then there's this popular like meme or we like to make fun of people because they are really not contrarian. They actually all think the same. And I think that the discrepancy there is that we're not on the same time horizon. Totally. Yet. If you look at entrepreneurs that are successful now, hence why we know of them, we may think that they'll think the same because the thing that they've done, that they proved at work, is now the common thing. Yeah. But for them to be successful now, they would have been contrarians back in the day. When you start building on something and people don't understand it or don't believe in it until they use it, mm -hmm. when three out of four people that you approach for money reject you, that's the contrarian element. So in many ways, I think that people, I'm assuming most people listening to this podcast and over the next few weeks and months, they may hear for a terror for the very first time and they may see it maybe like an overnight success or something, but Let's hope this podcast ages well. Let people know that you guys were building on Near since before there was much to do on Near. Yep. You bought into the vision of the tech stack and you started building your project using that. Mm -hmm. And that leads to my next point, which I think is really important. It's not what your country can do for you. It's what you can do for your country. 
Mm-hmm. Many investors are trying to ride the wave of big blockchain marketing, knowing that there's money there or there's easy money there. That's yeah. short-term thinking. Totally. You can 100% make money on Solana if it's working that day. <laughs> but we know, anyone that has used Solana knows, you're not going to be able to build certain types of user experiences. Certainly not something that resembles Web 2.0 right. on that blockchain. So I guess it no fault to those investors. I know that they're extremely busy people. It's people like you and I that are connoisseurs of technology. And it is really our job, your job to build it and my job to promote it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And one by one, we can keep onboarding people. I don't like to say proving people wrong, although in some instances we may be. No. I don't like it, to say converting, as this assumes that they have to abandon other ecosystems. Yep. Not at all. But I do think that progressively, as we show what we can actually do, mm-hmm. it will keep growing. Yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. And I, I think you're right on that. So the two points that I have with what you just said are, are this. One, when I hear that from investors, the only thing that comes to my mind is that our team just hasn't done enough yet. And I don't, like, it's, I can't take it personally. I can't take it as a knock on our company or a knock on near. It's just, there's still work to be done. And we need to prove it and show it because it's almost appreciative that people say it because, okay, at least you're not buying into all the hype. You're at least vetting stuff and, or at least acting like you're vetting stuff. But it's our job to go and build and do it. And then, and we will do it. And we're confident that we'll do it. And we're confident in near doing it as well and separating themselves. But to the point about the other entrepreneurs, my dad actually always taught me, and this is a, a, a weird thing because I apply it to everything in the startup space, is that where my parents are, and where they started with me and, and where I'm at now with them, they're a launch pad for me. And it's my job to go and write off what they've been able to do and then grow and exceed and, and go way beyond they could ever imagine. And it's same is true for when I have kids one day. It's true. But it's true in the entrepreneur space and the blockchain space. It's important to know where we came from. And we've all adopted something from Ethereum and early and early, other earlier projects. But that's a, supposed to be a launch pad too. We can go and not to knock Ethereum or other projects, we can go and then start from there and learn from other people's mistakes and iterate quicker, build faster, build features that are missing somewhere else, and then go and show it and do something that nobody ever could have imagined that we've done. So it's a waste of time to sit there and talk about converting and doing these things. And we're supposed to be running our own race. And I think that Nier does a very good job of putting their blinders on horse at a racetrack and doing their own thing. And that's what we do too as a company in our Terra Labs. There's a lot of noise and there's a lot of people raising big time money and it's really cool. But just keep your head down, focus and build something that matters. And then that is, and hopefully makes a difference, hopefully makes a difference in these content creators' lives and changes the dynamic for them and makes them, brings them financial freedom and allows them to engage better with fans and orgs to be able to take it to the next level. These are things that we think about. And I think if you build as a human, instead of building ones and zeros, you're really going to be set up for for long-term success. That's awesome. There's... A great saying, I'm going to attribute it to Matt Lockyer, but may have been someone else that near ships before it markets. Yeah. It's 100% true. And 
maybe this is why I really enjoy making the podcast because with each episode, there's like a few extra listeners and I get really nice messages in and I'm getting amazing speakers such as yourself. The key thing here is the reason why a lot of people are even more critical of Neo now is because we're in the top 20. Yep. But not many people in the traditional crypto world actually knows much about Nier. Yep. And there is a massive gap between we're currently one of the most funded blockchains out there. Yep. I remember messaging Michael Kelly with a message that said Solana just raised 350 million. I was like, fuck. Mm -hmm. He was like, I know, dude, it's getting tough. But hanging the technology wins the end of the day. You can burn 350 million. You can't physically buy and chain people to use your blockchain. Yep. So I think that what the enormous amounts of funding, private funding coming into the, the new ecosystem tell me is these people are able to see what we may not be marketing as well yet. Yep. or products and things that are not public yet. In some ways, people don't like it. There's going to be a lot of private money capturing, you know, the rapid course cycle. Yep. But at the same time, my argument is I've been bullish in here since March 2020. I know why these investors are putting money. In fact, I would argue they put money in late. <laughs> I came in March 2020, probably about the same price. I don't know what discount they got. Point of the story is the information is public. Most yep. people are not in the business of private investment, but as you said, it is your team's job to make what is needed for people to understand the potential as far as your industry goes. Mm -hmm. And with this podcast, YouTube and other things that I do, try to get more people to like think openly. I think that you said something really important. We don't have to fight with people. You can just like actually build and deliver yep. the solutions that you identify and the lessons from other ecosystems. And I think this is why, very topical issue, this is why a lot of people have a slight conspiracy theory, but I think it's got strong fundamentals that the Duke Labs team may have on purpose created a contract that was really bloated, that burned a lot of gas, that it, it was mayhem, basically knocked down Ethereum for two days. Mm -hmm. And then they introduce the notion of potentially launching their own blockchain. Yep, And it is very smart for them in the sense that most people consciously or unconsciously follow a very simple pattern. If you tell me very clearly what problem you're trying to solve, I'm going to be much, much more receptive to a no solution. Doubt. Mm -hmm. If the Yuga Labs guys come out of nowhere to say, we're going to create our blockchain, what are all the ETH maxes going to say? Mm -hmm. Just keep on Ethereum. Like, why are you trying to break off? But if they're able to successfully <laughs> clog the network and, and it just, it was massive drama. I couldn't believe Twitter the last few days. Yep. Then I guess their community at least would be more receptive. And it was really interesting to see other L2s and competing L1s. Basically everyone saying, we've known the problem for a long time. <laughs> These are the different alternatives and the different solutions. So yep. Yeah, kudos to that builder mentality and that growth mindset. I think we'd be in such a better place if more people in the world had it. But I think there are definitely examples such as this one and Elon Musk are inspiring more people to just pick up the tools and go to work. Yeah, I, I think so too. And 
I think it's just opening up the tools. Obviously, decentralization, everything is open source. You can fork whatever you want to fork, whatever. That's cool. But really opening up the tools, <clears throat> like it, it actually being there, not just, okay, go to this website, go to my GitHub repository. You can go check it out and try something yourself. No, it's actually having conversations and getting face-to-face -face and figuring out why what you're building is actually valuable. Because people waste a lot of time building something that's not going to go anywhere when they're really smart people. And if they could have just went a two degrees in a different direction, they could have built something that would have been a huge value add. And I think the best thing that Yuga Labs did, and I, I won't comment on the deal with their chain or whatever, who knows, but what I think the best thing they did is when they opened up the IP. I am fascinated watching what happens now with this board Ape IP getting on products and stuff like that. Like, I think they just did a really cool deal with, with I'm looking to make sure. You mean like the GIF maker? Yeah, so... GIF? No, being able to be... Yeah, so Jason the Ape, so GFuelNFT.com. Okay, they are going to be doing some really interesting stuff with an ape that's a board ape that was minted, and now they're making like G Fuel flavor out of it and doing some crazy stuff with it. So I don't know what all is going to go on there, but there's a lot of licensing stuff that I'm seeing that's going to be interesting. And why is that important? Because like we were saying early on, you have to go where the people are. Get out of the crypto echo chamber. Go into the real world. And it's hard to do this in Miami because everybody's Miami friendly. But what's great about like Miami and that openness and inviting ecosystem, come here, learn, build, that needs to be the crypto market everywhere. And Francis Suarez, the mayor down here, did it best two years ago or three years ago with the how can I help? And he sloganed it and he made it amazing. That's what this industry has to be. How can I help? And we're getting there, but we can't get distracted by the battle of the L1s. So, if I had yeah. to, uh, you could probably define different cities and cultures by slogans. Yeah. How can I help? Is Miami? It's a beautiful yeah. one. I think it's very inspiring. My aim in life is to make enough money to be able to afford to live in Miami. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll make my way there eventually. In Melbourne, I've, I've had different startups, different initiatives since I was yep. in the university days. And one thing that really struck me, and I have to be really careful because we do have excellent tech companies and very driven people, but culturally, especially yep. my city, Melbourne, which is more artsy and sport. Been there. So many people ask me like, how are you doing this? Who do you have to ask for permission? Like, how can you just like start something? And I was like, I really started to appreciate like being a migrant and mm. questioning everything and not growing up in a nanny state yep. where everything is given to you or it has to be pre-approved for it to be acceptable. Yep. Because I started to identify many very smart people, I'd say much smarter than me. They studied law because it was prestigious yep. and they may be wasting their potential considering how much technology is growing, how much societal change is happening. Just because it was never instilled in them that they can really just think outside of the box and give it a try. Mm. And even culturally, the notion of failing in the US is completely different. Like in Australia, if you fail, you try to yeah. go for the secure thing, jobs pay well, it's easy to get a mortgage. It's just like, why would you risk it if you can have yep. normal life? Yep. And in fact, there was a Andrew Hyde, Startup Colorado or something. He, he was the entrepreneur in residence in Victoria, I think in 2016. May have been earlier. He said something that has stuck with me since. 
He said, I love the city. It's actually amazing. If I were to start a new company, I'd do it here. And his logic was completely backwards. And every Australian of my friends that I've told, opposite directions. His logic was their lifestyle here is so good for everyday people. This is what people aim for in the United States when they exit. Yep. So I want to start my company here so that I can enjoy the lifestyle while I build it up. Mm. Australians are like, why the fuck would you risk lifestyle (laughs) working on a company that may fail? Yeah. Just chill. So anyway, I think that... It's a fair point. That's a very fair point. You mentioned very briefly your parenting and that you also lived in a city that was a bit more artsy. So if you could just give me a little bit more about your background, what did you study? When did you move to Miami? How did you become this like crypto NFT esports leader? Leader. Wow. That's a funny word. Yeah. So I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there was no tech scene and a very small, very non-diverse area, which has really grown a lot, actually. It's unrecognizable when you go back now. It's pretty exciting for the city. But my background, I grew up being in an aerospace facility. That's what my dad started a company in when he finished high school, actually. Uh, He started with working on some toasters and fixing them. And he was a car racer, so he knew how to work on cars and then learned how to work on airplanes. So that's that's what I grew up in. So learned how to weld and do all that kind of stuff and, and got to see how to run a business and what startup life is like. And I was obsessed with it. And I went to university in Texas. I played football there and got medically disqualified, unfortunately. But I had nothing to do with my time anymore besides school. And I was used to 5 a.m. workouts and and then football practice after classes were done and then more training and then studying for school. And I needed to fill my time. So I really dove into the crypto space because it was fascinating and I was interested in it. Oh, and I studied public policy, by the way, in school, public policy and economics. So a lot different than what I'm doing now, but I was just fascinated with the crypto space and it was new. It was emergent. It was ripe for, for disruption. And I, I just really liked it. And my whole life, I've been a big video game player, which I know sounds like a contradiction to to playing sports and all that stuff. But I always would find time from MMORPGs to first-person shooters to all the sports games, played it all. And I loved it a lot. And I got into the crypto space, just learning about Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then I got in to start learning about blockchain gaming. And I got into that early with another blockchain company. 2018, I think, is when that starts really early on into the NFT gaming side of things. And realized really quickly, didn't want to develop video games at all. It was way out of my purview and really expensive to do. And I was self-funding everything from jobs that I had and working at my dad's place. So I didn't want to be completely broke in the bank account. But I loved the technology of NFTs. And I watch a lot of esports competitions. I watch a lot of content creators, always have, even before it blew up. And I knew that this would be a really good way, utilizing digital collectibles to enhance fandom in this space with such a global audience and unique, really unique background of of people because there's people from all different corners and pockets of the world. And each one needs to be engaged differently. 
and it's never a one size fit all. So it has to have, you have to have a strategy that is nimble enough to, and affordable enough to be able to m- market and reach and engage a bunch of different people and digital collectibles were the answer. The only thing that was missing was affordable. So obviously we started looking at this on the ETH side and then I learned about Near, and it was it was pretty much over. It was over from there. And my buddy Bridge Craven, one of my good friends, we actually went to high school together, played football together, kind of didn't talk to his to each other as much in, in college early on, and then reconnected. And he's he did his literally a whole university study on blockchain technology. And he started a DeFi fund and had about twenty million asset under management, and then. He always says he he stopped that because he realized he wanted to keep his hair before he was 30. And he was he thought he was losing hair from all the stress and lack of sleep, doing all the trading and all that kind of stuff. So we linked up and that's how we got here. That's awesome. I can see how public policy and economics would start to give you an overview of the current world. Right. Enough so that when you come across the crypto world and all the new economic primitives and the way in which you can shape society, it captures your interest. Mm-hmm. I also have a, a background in law and uh, liberal arts, history and, and international studies, politics. It's certainly not something that I'm working on. I don't regret it, but this is slowly morphing into a rapid fire question. Would you recommend people to go to college and get like that base education? Or if somebody's listening to this and they're just like really interested in crypto, the technology, would you sell them to fuck it, just drop out and go deep mm. elsewhere? Are there enough resources and opportunities online? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of resources and opportunities o- online, but you have to be careful with this because there's a lot of, everybody's situation is unique. But obviously, the number one thing that you can ever have is to not be strapped with with debt and stressed. And as long as there's a lot of assets online to learn, a lot of really good ones. But the best thing that you can get a hold of is get inside of groups, whether it be Discord channels or Telegram channels, and learn something. If you are non-technical, I highly encourage people to go do online like marketing or community courses and learn, even if you don't even do it, learn how to market something, learn how to market yourself, learn how to market something that you're interested in. Even if you're not paid to do it for practice, go market to your, your family, go pitch, go do, just learn and get comfortable because as long as you're comfortable with people and care enough about yourself and your future, anyone is talented enough to make it in this space. It's just, you have to put the work in. It's not going and learning solidity. You don't have to do all that stuff, but you should know what that means. You should know what an oracle is. You should know all the terminology so you can speak on it. But there is a place for everyone here, and that's what's exciting about it. It's up to you to determine what path you want to take. If you went to school, if you didn't get to school, you can always find your way into this niche and find a welcome home. That was the perfect answer to my next question. (laughs) I was going to ask... There's a strong pattern there between people that have had like role models or that they've been exposed to entrepreneurship or business yeah. or, you know, my dad was also an engineer. And I think that there's yeah. definitely like a trend there. So I was going to ask around if people have not had that exposure before, or I guess, how can we get more people into the ecosystem if they're starting mm-hmm. from zero? I think that your answer around surrounding yourself with people that are in that world and just like seeking resources online is pretty good. Yep. If you have any specific ones, uh, I can add them to the show notes. Just send them to me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And always, I think it's really important to remember, Twitter is a better tool than LinkedIn and YouTube can be your best friend. You can find a lot of really smart people on, on YouTube and you brought up Elon, but so much of my thought process, I never m mimic my thought process off of one person. I just listen to a lot of really smart people and formulate their thoughts into how it can I can make that me and push forward with that. And YouTube is a good place. Just listen to how people interview and talk and iterate on things. And, uh, and Twitter, get on Twitter and, and get, get to following the right people that follow similar interests and ask questions. Don't be afraid to dive in, slide into the DMs, even you slide it into 10 peoples. And even if one response, that one person could change the trajectory of your life. And so don't be scared to just jump off into the deep end and, and, and go for it. Bet on yourself. They said that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And that may sound really depressing for people depending yeah. on where they live or which stage of their life they're in. But something that I realized in, it was pretty early on, I think it was 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. listening through podcasts, I realized that the five people that I was spending the most time with don't actually have to be in your like physical, immediate Correct. life. Yep. You can actually start absorbing people's knowledge and thoughts. Like I, I still listen to it, but I was definitely a heavier listener back in the day. And it also had a much stronger entrepreneurship focus back in the day. The Team Paris podcast. Yeah, it was great. It really showed me a side of the world and technology that was definitely inspirational. And I guess that if I may plug my own podcast here, you should listening to content like this one. It's amazing. Like each guest is different. And something that I've really come to appreciate about like smaller podcasts, so to speak, mm -hmm. is that the range of guests is different. They can be much more relatable. It's it's a different experience. Like I obviously still like to listen to like the all in podcasts and whatnot. Yeah, uh, of course. But I think that there's a lot of value in connecting with people. And for instance, I'm through the DMs for you after this podcast. You'll be there. My DMs are open, although I'm terrible at replying. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. I and I encourage it too. And what we do may not be the right fit or the might or the right building process for what other people want to do. And that's totally okay. I, I do it. My, my brother-in-law is get is in this space. He's really good in the trading side of things. And now he's going and building his own DeFi applications and stuff like that and putting together a really strong team and has crazy backers. So he's starting 10 times higher and, and further along than I ever could, which is awesome because he got to learn from other people's mistakes that I wasn't able to. And now he's getting into the near ecosystem too, and he's going to start building and doing some really cool stuff too. So that's what it's about. It's just talking and having conversations and you never know what's going to happen. Now, the joke here is we're going to enter the rapid fire question, which in the past, it hasn't been as rapid or as fire, but we'll see what we can do. Let's do it. What are you most excited about over the next three to six months? Most excited about education. and getting evangelists of people who hated crypto before. Are we living in a simulation? <laughs> you can make a strong argument for both. Who knows? Sometimes you think yes, and other times you pray no. <laughs> this is very weird to me because it's actually been rapid fire. Any books or movies that you recommend to people that you've read or I've seen recently? Two books that I would encourage someone to read. Number one would be Atomic Habits. It has nothing to do with crypto, but I think it's the number one book that anyone in the world could read because you need to learn how to form good habits and why that is important for success. And number two would be Actionable Gamification. It's a pretty long book, but gamification is for everybody. It's not just for companies like us. 
we need to be able to gamify everything and make people competitive and compete for things and climb leaderboards and want to learn more. And when people want to learn more on their own without being prompted, we have success. We have successfully gotten to the point we need to be in our ecosystem. John, thanks so much for your time. That was amazing. Anything else you want to plug before we go? Nothing to plug. Just plug you. You're the best. I, we really enjoyed having you here in our office, and this has been great. And you're, you are extremely thought-provoking, and it's just a pleasure to have you around and glad you're in the near ecosystem and not somewhere else. Thank you. I wasn't expecting that, but I'll take it. <laughs> awesome. If anyone has questions or just wants to chat or reach out, we'll put the link to my Twitter or something down there, and then we can have a chat and get on a FaceTime or something. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate your support. A quick reminder that the Wild User Interviews podcast is for entertainment and education purposes only. None of the information contained in this episode is meant to be financial advice. Remember to always do your own research. Now that we have that quasi-legalese out of the way, I would strongly encourage you to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast because we've got a steaming hot pipeline of guests coming up for everything from founders, investors, and core operators of the New York ecosystem. You won't regret it. Thank you.